1: This is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Bradley Morgan, who's the author of U2's The Joshua Tree, Planting Roots in Mythic America. Bradley, thanks for being here with me today.
2: Thank you for having me, Rebecca.
1: Could you talk a little bit about why you wanted to write this book about the Joshua Tree and about U2 and, and that stuff?
2: So with this book, it ends with a very personal essay that it kind of explores that. So a little bit about the book. The book is an exploration of the dichotomy of America, this concept of the promised land versus reality, this two Americas concept that you 2 and specifically Bono were championing as they were exploring America um, after their increased fame following Live Aid in the 1980s. And these were a group of men who, growing up in 70s Ireland, which was, had a lot of sectarian violence, was the poorest country in Western Europe. And with the mythical legacy of America built into kind of the Irish consciousness, they had this uh, viewpoint that America was like the land of the free, as you know the, the myth seems to suggest. But when they go there and tour, they see uh, the systemic uh, racism. They see the uh, poverty. They see um, how religious and political institutions are furthering this dichotomy. And as opposed to kind of falling into that kind of cynical idea, like this country was never the promise, you know, it, you know, this country was never the promise it eluded, it was, you know, it's, it's actually a lot more complex. Instead of diving into that cynicism, they instead wanted to recognize what didn't work and elevate this myth idea for them as something to work towards. And that's something that I felt very strongly about for a, a lot of years, especially with the advent of um, Christian nationalism, with the rise of Trump's influence in the GOP, and this, the general direction of how politics in America are going, the rise of fascism and authoritarianism across South America and across Europe. And I wanted to convey my ideas about this larger idea. And kind of in my own small way, push against that furthering divide and show that we have more things in common than we do. And I found that the best way to communicate that through was with you too, because of my love for the music, my love for the messaging. And, you know, when, as things seem to be very bleak, you know, it's, it's the morning after the <laughs> midterm election, um, I feel that kind of messaging is really important for a lot of reasons, not only because I want this to be the country that I want to see, but I think there's a lot of privilege in that self-flagellation idea of like, oh, this is a terrible thing, we can never get better, and just, you know, commiserate without doing anything. And I think that leads to a culpability. So my book was a method of just analyzing that through lens of art and specifically art that is meant to be uh, unifying and humanistic. So
1: let's talk. A little bit about kind of situating you two in the Joshua Tree. Uh, You and I are different ages, and we came at this album (laughs) and even the tours in very different times, right? Like this, I think I'd written to you was one of my first big arena tours was seeing Joshua Tree in 1987 or 88, whenever they first came through, which was not the case for you since you were born at that time. Um, and so you came at it at a different time. So can you sort of situate us in um, the origins of Joshua Tree in that timeframe and then kind of where you're coming at it and then we can look at some songs. <laughs> Yeah.
2: So, uh, I was born in December of 1987. Joshua was released in March of 1987. So it was already a worldwide phenomenon by the t- time I, I came on. Um, you know, I was probably co- conceived during that time, during that success. So, um, um, you know, it's, I grew I, you know, how this album came to me. I'm not sure exactly how. Um, I grew up in a military family. I moved around a lot. I lived in places where I did have a lot of access to music in some form, either like record stores, I mean, also pre-advent of the internet. But um, having moved around a lot in the United States and spending a lot of time in very like polar opposite places, such as Alaska for a number of years and Puerto Rico, it gave me an insight into the complexities of America and just all the different identities. And um, that's just something that was very innate in my growing up. Um, I also had a mother who was born in London to Irish parents. And so I had a lot of that English and Irish influence into my life, uh, kind of furthering that complexity. So it gave me a lot of appreciation for that messaging. And when the album came out, I mean, this was, you had, um, the first number one singles that you two achieved in the U S and the UK. Um, This was on the, this was their first release after live aid, which completely catapulted them to major superstardom and success. And I think their direction to want to convey this really deep idea of about America was an incredibly bold choice because one even messaging, even messaging about unifying audiences can still be very controversial and very, you know, especially now in these polarized times, but to do so from perspective of people who aren't Americans, you know, kind of that outsider looking in. And that always really appealed to me. And um, when they toured 30 years later for the Joshua Tree Tour, a lot of these fragments of ideas that I had about this album were starting to come together. And when they came and toured for that album for its 30th anniversary, it wasn't from the perspective of like a nostalgia fest that like a lot of these tours can be. Um, I write about in the book and cite sources that they started to understand facets of their own music and the album that they hadn't really appreciated before um, until a more extreme version of Reagan had appeared and uh, emboldened white supremacy and white nationalist fears. And being able to see this all in real time as it was happening, it gave me that kind of appreciation. So, uh, And if people had missed it during the 80s, now was like okay they're starting to see this this is becoming a lot clearer and i think a lot that clarity of messaging has has been a result of just the dire situation um that we're in
1: and so you kind of walk through this and you walk through the album but you don't um even though you kind of talk about how it was recorded you know it was one of the It's first CDs, right? It was again during the time when CDs were just being released. It's something you could listen to straight through, but it works really well as an LP as well, a vinyl as well. Um, But you don't go song by song by song in the order of the album either in your kind of analysis and talk. So sometimes, so so what was the choice in that as well? Like, why did you think? it was important to kind of talk about you know the songs in the album but not necessarily in that order that they were written and in the order they were performed on the album
2: so with this book i didn't want to just write a wikipedia article about the recording of the album and this was my first book i had never really written before and so i came at this with like no name no credentials just this idea and it took me a long time to get this book published um required a lot of pitching and i write about in the opening that this the original idea for the book was a lot different than how it turned out if i had to give it like kind of percentages of like music versus politics it was going to be more heavily on the political side because that's the reason why i was writing this book and i read a lot of political books i really wanted to address that and i was putting together my proposal I was working with a very wonderful uh, friend and colleague of mine named Rebecca Suzanne, and she gave me the greatest piece of advice during this entire process. She goes, you need to write more about the music. And I knew she was right. And it was something that I I avoided for a long time because I didn't have the confidence in myself to write about music that way. I mean, I've read music books. I, I own music books. But just through my own insecurity and even just some minor experiences growing up, I just like, I can't write about music that way. And I'm glad that someone dragged that out of me because I absolutely needed to. And so going into the order that I did with the book, the first song I start with is bolt of blue sky, which is track number four. And I end with one tree hill, which is track number nine. Um, The reason for that is it I didn't want to give the reader whiplash because some of these themes and ideas, they appear throughout the album at different points. So it was about finding a common narrative thread. So starting with Bull of the blue sky, I wanted to come out guns a blazing and be like, these are problems that the band and myself have seen uh, in this country. Here's some examples of that. Here's Bono's uh, trip to South uh, Central America. And then kind of, as we showcase, okay, Here's all the problems. It's meant to be as a indication of here we are now. But then as we move to songs like "I um, uh, In God's Country, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, With or Without You, and the others that aren't so overtly political, the idea is, okay, we have assessed where we are now and a lot of the issues we have in this country, but here are ideas that either elevate certain aspects of America or elevate certain aspects of ourselves and the identities that we're finding in this book. And that search for identity is something that is a major through line throughout the entire book. Not just um, the band exploring their own identities. The Edge has said that they didn't realize their own Irishness until they visited America. But as well as my identity being of a mixed nationality household, uh, coming of age during um, 9-11 and the Iraq war, and then through the trump administration and just be, and my own kind of journey in discovering my place in america and what i can do to have this be a country that i want to see more for myself
1: so let's talk about some of these tracks, right? And some of these chapters and we don't need to go. We won't go through every single one since we have to leave some there for people to, uh, but i even though I could talk about every single one if you wanted, but why don't we start with Bull of the blue sky? Because you um, talk about like, like you mentioned you too is very often looked at and has looked at has been looked at, I would and you argue and would say too for the entirety of their career as a very political as a political band, right? In this political space. And so can you talk a little bit about what you were seeing or what you wanted to really showcase with starting and looking at that song, what they were doing in 1980s, and then how it kind of relates to today.
2: So with you two being a political band, I think a lot of that is in hindsight because but prior to the Joshua Tree um there are certain songs you can bring out that were like are indicative of okay they are a political band but oftentimes a lot of those songs weren't very current in terms of its themes or ideas and leading up to the recording of the Joshua Tree bono had never really considered songwriting to be important in the process of making an album the process for their four prior albums was Let's just make music, let's make a soundscape, and we'll fit words to that. And it was a process that Bono referred to as sketching, kind of like this idea of just like penciling of things or throwing paint at a canvas and just seeing how it drips out. So I write how Bullet the Blue Sky is their first overtly political song because it is a direct condemnation of American influence in Central and South American politics, Bono had went to Nicaragua and El Salvador to see um, a lot of what was happening there. And actually even witnessing bodies thrown out of vans, jet pilots, uh, jet, uh, jet fighters, a lot of destruction. And so I felt that was a very important place to start. And, and the most fascinating detail was that was he was in a church in El Salvador and saw a mural of Reagan as the pharaoh. And you have all these people running away from the pharaoh. And I thought that was just a really interesting idea. And it became a point of analysis in the song about what exactly does that mural mean? Because the explanation that he got doesn't seem to mesh well with the actual themes of the song. And so um, I did a deep analysis into that, um, exploring just his own personal history with the with that region. And using it as a launching point to really drive home this idea of, The danger that politics can have domestically and internationally. Because also what that song does address as well is uh, Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority, which was the, you know, kind of, not the genesis of Christian nationalism, but the kind of genesis of its efforts as a grassroots initiative to influence political elections. And that's another theme that Bono and you two cover a lot of is religion. You could say they're always a religious band that, you know, they sing about Jesus a lot, but there's a lot of Elements in throughout their career, and especially on Joshua Tree and Bullet the Blue Sky, where they condemn this very specific type of bastardization of faith for political and religious influence. Mm -hmm. I hope that answered your question. I'm
1: sorry. No, it totally did. Right, and you and you also talk a little bit about and throughout though you. you talk about how they've kind of set up um, with both the blue sky and some of the other songs. How they music, so we've got lyrically, but also musically, how they wanted to create sort of a scene or a space or imagery for people. And so, can you talk a little bit about that too? Like some of the ways they were with the music itself, setting up kind of this vision and imagery that they were seeing.
2: So they did it in two ways. The first way was with the production, and they wanted to create a soundscape that was cinematic. And this is a word that keeps popping up every time you know you see anything written about the Joshua Tree. It's just how cinematic it was. When they were touring America, they became very fascinated with the desert, and they write ex- and they talk about that extensively about the influence that the desert has had on them. And the sound that you hear on the Joshua Tree is trying to evoke that. Kind of scenery, even the opening track where the streets have no name, I always think of like a sunrise coming up. And I went to Zabriskie Point where the cover of Joshua Tree was taken and I saw the sunrise over Zabriskie Point. It's like hard not to like separate that opening, you know, tone just swelling in as like the sun is rising. So through the work of Eno and Daniel Lanois, they're exploring whatever. This means to be cinematic. But the other element that influenced their music was exploring American roots and other traditional American forms of music to influence their sounds. A big example of that would be I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, which takes root in a lot of gospel influence. And that was a really fascinating chapter to write about because I kept having to return to it. Because a lot of the times when we think about White artists who appropriate black forms or black culture, you know there's there's not a lot of attention that's paid to the origin of it, to the tradition of it, and they tend to co-opt it as to their own. I mean, popular radio has no shortage of musicians who have gotten really rich off of black sounds, you know Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin. But when I was going through that song, a pivotal Event that had happened that kind of made me take a look at it in a different way because I kept having to come back to it, just that idea of just white appropriation of 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 black music. I I ended up rewriting it a lot of it when uh, George Floyd was murdered, and because I had to wrestle with this idea that this is an album I love, this is a band I love, you know, am I going to just make an excuse for for this, you know, but. Covering in that chapter a lot of the issues of white appropriation in Black music, in Black culture, the ultimate thing I, I ended up settling on was committing to that idea of, these are a group of men who are trying to communicate a more universal humanistic idea, even in the lyrics you know, um, Kingdom Come, where all the colors will bleed into one, like that to me is like the most defining element, and carries that gospel tradition forward because of that commitment to the messaging, and I feel that separates it from just a co co opting of black music. And another song that does this very well, this exploration of roots music, is Trip Through Your Wires, which is a very like rough and tumble honky tonk kind of song. And I write in the book how that song had seen its origins on an Irish television program where they had premiered it in 1986. They had just started conceptualizing what the Joshua Tree would be, and if you go on YouTube and find this, uh, they they look like like extras from the film Easy Rider. It's kind of really ridiculous looking, and they're leaning really heavy on the the blues uh in such a comical way that you know they're they're trying to figure out this is, is, is an art form that they're coming to later in life and trying to figure out and make their own um but i think the end product in the album carries out very well and i think honors um those kind of cultural tr- traditions that make uh america so great
1: yeah and so you and you bring up and you brought this up and and then you brought up i still haven't found what i'm looking for but One of the big things with you, too, is they're often, you mentioned, looked at as um, a Christian through the lens of Christianity or looked at their relationship to Christianity um, in those spaces. And often I still haven't found what I'm looking for becomes the song that people talk about um, in Bono's struggle. And and you kind of complicate that or make it a little more complex. And so can you talk about um, that, what you see in the Joshua Tree with this relationship to Christianity with um, you two and with Bono and what's going on?
2: So Christianity has been a major through line through a lot of their music, and three of the members, Bono, Edge, and Larry, are really devout Christians. Adam is is not, and it was something that they've wrestled with throughout their entire career. I mean, famously, um, the band almost quit music while making their second album, October, because they were being pressured by an evangelical fellowship called Shalom that was really putting into their head their ideas like, can you be able to serve God over serving your music. And they had to go through like a personal existential journey through that. Um, I mean, it was at that time, you know, they had no concept that they were going to be like these mega successful stars. So, I mean, they could have easily had faded into obscurity like a lot of other bands have. Um, but that evolving relationship with their religion comes comes into a really great... Turning point in this album because you really see cohesively through the songwriting, through the narratives of the song, that they're using their music to elevate a messaging that aligns with many aspects of Christianity that serves people, um, but not in a way, not in a fundamentalist or evangelical or fanatical way. And I think that is a a very important turning point for them. And it comes from that strengthening of songwriting that Bono had committed to during the recording process.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So another thing that comes through and that you talk about throughout is um, especially Bono's relationship to philanthropy his relationship um to the he and with his wife as well um and and how you mentioned central america he you also talk about his trips to ethiopia and so can you talk a little bit about that where you saw that coming out in some of the music and in how this album was sort of constructed and put together
2: so we all know that bono is a major activist or as he refers to as an actualist and he's a very big um Uh, He's very big into philanthropy and uh, doing a lot of great work in a lot of causes. It's kind of helped, not sorry, um, it's kind of hurt his image in a lot of ways, especially for the younger people, the millennials who just don't seem to think he's cool, or the jaded Gen Xers who feel a little, you know, betrayed that he has sold out to the man in some way. My personal opinion is that he adds a net positive to the world, so that is cool with me. But yeah, um, the activism came. Right around this time, because after doing live aid, he got approached to do some missionary work in Ethiopia. And he was very cautious about that because he didn't want it to be, you know, a a public relations stunt. Like here goes Bono to do something and get some pictures taken, which is, you know, the stereotype now. He went to Ethiopia, stayed there for a month, lived in a tent and had, you know, and it really had a profound effect on him to see. Um, a whole group of people handling their issues of starvation, their issues of poverty with such grace and dignity that it made him feel ashamed and embarrassed and that he felt that um, the West and particularly America were just rather spoiled. And that trip influenced the writing of Where the Streets Have No Name. And it's this idea of You know, where you live shouldn't determine how you live. You know, when we think about a lot of major cities in Europe or the the United States, I live in Chicago. There are certainly good blocks, there's bad blocks, and there's all these demarcations, like physically in the infrastructure, that fuel demarcations and our social and cultural infrastructure as well. And his experiences there really reinforce his idea to yearn from like we need to achieve a place where the streets have no name, where there are no demarcations that separate us based on gender, on ethnicity, on race, on sexuality, on anything that's there to kind of otherize us. <clears throat> and uh, okay, how, how was that? I, I, mean, I can keep going. But. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, no, I was just wondering um, to, and thinking about, yeah, like how, those ways in which, right, his activist work his philanthropy sort of was what's influence or influenced the album right I think you know you mentioned Ethiopia and I think it's also important as we think about like 1987 was very different right as you mentioned like Live Aid had just happened Live Aid was all about like this extreme famine that was happening throughout Africa Um, and so what he was doing was something that was very different, like, 35 years ago than we think about today, right? And what he was doing was um, kind of remarkable and wasn't something as commonplace, right? This was prior to people going out, you know, white folks going and adopting children in Africa and, you know, doing, like, white celebrities um, and doing these things on a con- in the continent in different ways, so. Yeah. So... <laughs> What I think there's also this really interesting thing about you two that you get at, and you talk a little bit about how they kind of use their stage show as well, right? So you talk about the album, but you also talk about you seeing the tour in 2017. You talk about them, right? And you talk about 9 11 and them right after 9 11 being on the Super Bowl. And so, can you talk a little bit about also how they're using? Um, how they kind of use their stage, the 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 actual stage as a stage for their sort of politics and activism and and what they're singing and talking about. So,
2: with each of the chapters where I explore a song, I do cover how that song was represented in the 30th anniversary tour for the Joshua Tree. And some of those songs, it's a reflection of a political point that they're trying to make in reference to the album, or it may just be something that, you know, in the case of, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, just a point of jubilation and celebration in a live sense. So an example of how they utilize their stage show, specifically with this 30th anniversary tour, one of the most compelling ones was uh, for the track exit, which is a song that was inspired by uh, new journalism authors like Truman Capote, Norman Mailer, um, Flannery O'Connor. And it's a song about kind of inside the head of someone who is looking to murder, who feels isolated and alienated because they've been marginalized in this country, you know, either because they become disconnected with. Society with culture, they feel there may perhaps their government has has let them behind. You know that kind of lone wolf aspect that leads to um, horrendous atrocities and violence, such as murder or school shootings. And prior to that song in the 30th anniversary tour, they show a clip from a television show called Trackdown, now aired on the CBS in the 1950s, and. In this clip, there is a kind of snake oil salesman who comes into town whose name is Trump, who is there to say, I'm here to protect the town by building a big wall around it. You don't have to worry about any foreigners or outside influence. And it's tearing the the town in two. You have people who are like, yeah, you know what? I like what this Trump guy has to say. And there's others who, who don't for their own reasons. I mean, it mirrors politically what we've experienced the last couple of years, um, and the Trump that's referenced in that video is, is a callback to Fred Trump, Donald's father, who was a notorious uh, landlord and slumlord in New York uh, during during the 30s and 40s. You have to be so terrible that like Woody Guthrie wrote a song condemning him. And it kind of, using visual element like that, then going into a song like Exit, it draws in that connection of how... The divisiveness in this country and how the marginalization of, of people who feel alienated by the government can do something like that. And I, and I, that was a very impactful, uh, thing for me to see. And I had never seen that clip before. I thought that was, you know, incredibly cool, but they have always used their stage and their visual elements to convey certain ideas and evolve those ideas so exit is a song that's not really you know you don't really see that that much so let's take a more famous song like bullet the blue sky so that is a song where you know it had a very certain genesis to be it was written about this you know his his trip to el salvador nicaragua nicaragua seeing the violence there but as time goes on and this song became a you know. I don't think it was a hit, but it became a big, you know, concert staple in their tours. You see how they've evolved that idea and imagery to kind of be a reflection or a mirror of what was happening at that time. And even trying to redirect certain energies as well. So uh, I cite um, an author and blogger in the book who talks about how after 9-11, Bull of the Blue Sky just became like this cathartic experience for the audience to kind of just, you know, rally this anger and aggression towards uh muslims and other people from the middle east and that's not a direction that you want to go in so so years so for tours after that there's very intentional productions that are meant to kind of corral you into into understanding what they're addressing and to get you thinking about those ideas so An example would be in 2015 for their Innocence and Experience tour during the Bullet the Blue Sky. A lot of that imagery is of like stock market tickers, of people in business suits. I mean, this was coming um, several years after the you know the global financial meltdown and the vast inequity that happened, you know, from that and continues to happen uh, in our in our culture. And I think that's a very I think that's a very good thing to do, because there's a lot of times where people can misinterpret art or project their own biases onto art. I mean, think about uh, Reagan using Born in the USA as an example during, during his uh, during his election. So it it takes a lot of responsibility and reflection to be able to say, okay, I have this message with my art. I'm trying to get you to see a certain idea. And they do that very well.
1: Right. Um, so in the album, you talk a little bit too, like about some of those hidden gems, I'm going to call them hidden gems, right? But like, what are those songs like, you know, that you um, feel are often overlooked? And like you said, this was this first big breakthrough album. It was the first like large US tour, number one hits like this is the album for you too, right? Um. So what are you know what are those songs that you feel need to get a little more airplay and talk?
2: <laughs> One of the things I was really worried about when I was writing this book was that, you know, going through a lot of the reference materials such as YouTube by YouTube or these other books to do my research, there wasn't a lot written about certain songs, and I was really concerned like, oh, am I just really gonna be talking about the hits? And as it turned out, like those are some of my shortest chapters. Like the, it's the hidden gems that are actually my longest chapters because I had an opportunity to really dive into it and kind of blaze new ground a little bit with some of the analysis and interpretations of these songs. And one song I think doesn't get uh, enough attention is One Tree Hill. I think it's I think it's probably my favorite song on the album. Um, it's a very beautiful song. The, the background for that is. Um, what's usually attributed to is the death of Greg Carroll, who was a roadie for the band. Uh, he was a Maori man who was discovered in New Zealand. When the, when u two was touring New Zealand and Australia for the unforgettable fire, they became so enamored with him. They invited him to join for the rest of the tour. And he became very close with the, with the band, um, often taking their wives out to dinner and dancing while the guys were gone on tour or whatever. And, um, he developed a really deep friendship, and uh, unfortunately, he, he died tragically in a motorcycle accident. He took Bono's motorcycle to run an errand for him. I think it must have been raining or something, and uh, he hit a car and died on impact. And it left a really deep scar for Bono. And a lot of the writing, and even just his own discussions about the song, it's all centered on Greg Carroll. Like, and I think a lot of fans see, oh, this is a song about Greg Carroll, but it's a lot more complex than that because in the lyrics, there's references to Victor Jara, who is the Chilean folk singer and protester who was uh, murdered by the Pinochet regime in a, in a stadium that was housed uh, that was used to house dissidents that YouTube would later perform at in the '90s. And exploring Victor Jara and that background and a lot of the emotions that Bono has, I got to write a lot about his feelings around death and loss and all the significant amount of loss that he has had throughout his life, you know, through the death of his mother at 14 to now to the death of a really good friend of his. And it was, it was a bit of a challenge to have to kind of explore that and write that in a very cohesive way, especially when you have so much, you know, other sources say, Oh, this song, Greg Carroll, that's it. So it became a, like a meditation of, of of death and those times when we just want to just we're just so tired and we want to resign ourselves.
1: So you you know you and we've talked a bit about you know you look at each song on um, each track in the album, um, but you also like you talked about at the beginning look at yourself and how you two has kind of impacted and influenced yourself. So do you want to talk about that a little bit and kind of what that personal part of what this writing this and what this album and thinking about it really did for you?
2: So my first experience of collective trauma just due to my age and was nine 11. And what I mean by, Collective trauma. I mean, I had seen. I, I'm. I have memories of things happening before that, like the Columbine shooting. But 9/11 was my first real experience where I. I understood this. You know, the widespread effects of this thing. Where I'm okay. Okay, this is a very big, impactful thing. And as a millennial, and as a millennial man, I. I think about that point a lot because that seemed to be a point in which a lot of just Americans and a lot of young white men happen to become, or happen to go on a path that leads to what we see now with Trump and with MAGA and a lot of this rhetoric that is borderline or even overtly racist or nativist, and um, to and from there. I write about, you know, just observations and feelings about the Iraq War as a young teenager. And then the rise of Islamophobia and racism during President Obama's first presidential term. And it was really, really startling. And I've wrestled with that for a long time. of Like, what exactly, you know, separated me from others who decided to take different paths? And I think it was just the commitment to this idea that, you know this collective this collectivist idea that was that was very important for me and just and i think that comes from a lot of my experiences of just being in a lot of different cultures moving up moving um in a military family having um you know non-american influences in my family and it's it's given me kind of a perspective to see like why we're still having some of the issues we have now um you know I saw this really great tweet a couple months ago, and I can't remember who posted it, but it was this idea that every young white man is on a path towards self-destruction unless something or someone pulls them out of it. And as soon as I read that, I was like, that makes absolutely such perfect sense to me. and it makes me just really wonder about, you know, why people go on those certain paths. And so it's, it's, it's a journey that I'm still on. I'm still trying to figure out for myself. I think it's a journey that, that, that Bono is still on. I, I saw him last night at the Chicago Theater for his Stories of Surrender tour. And he, and he talks about how just America is still this idea that's being created. And I just, I feel so connected to that. And the reason why I want to champion that is that I feel anything otherwise, I'd have culpability, we all have a responsibility in this country to you know, bring about the country that we all need. And that level of responsibility is is different based on who you are and your background. But we all have that responsibility. And the last thing I want to do is be culpable in, in a way that um, hurts others.
1: I could, yeah, again, I could talk about you two forever. Um, so what is it, like, where do you see you two either bringing you or kind of this message as we move, as you said at the beginning, we're talking to each other the day after midterm elections, right? We're moving in some interesting directions in the United States. So what is this like, what is that final sort of message or push or that you see from writing this and thinking about Joshua tree and you two and your own kind of experience? So I wrote the first draft of this book, um, in the fall and winter of 2018,
2: and a lot has changed in the country over the last four years. And in some ways, a lot worse, a lot more polarizing. My, my advice, my advice or things I would say is I know it seems difficult. And, but we have to somehow get together on this. I know that sounds vague. If, if you're looking for deep political analysis, like if you're looking for a deep analysis on the on the on the steps on how to get there, this is not the right book for you. This is a book about you two and the Joshua Tree through that lens. But there's a lot of great books out there that talk about you know what we can more proactively do. Uh, one example that I really liked that I read was um, a book called On Tyranny. Uh, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, written by a historian named Tim B. Snyder. And some of the things that he talks about in this book, he, he, from his historical perspective, he says, you know, we're kind of like in this weird confluence of pre-World War II Germany and pre-Civil War America. And some of the things that he talks about, I try to discuss with my friends and family. And, you know, and it's really this idea of that you've got to have conversations with people who don't think like you. And you know, some of the, re- some of the responses here is like, well, you know, it's not my responsibility to change people's minds or, it, you know, it's, you know, I don't need to do the work for them. They have to do their own research. I'm sorry, if you have that, if, if that's an attitude that you have, then you're setting them on the wrong path. I mean, we, we've just learned over the last couple of years that, you know, social media and, the, and a lot of the algorithms are designed to reinforce certain biases, you know, so you by not choosing to say, hey, you know, maybe check out this book or check out this, you're setting them on a path where ultimately they can fall down a rabbit hole such as QAnon. Um, so I think that's a very important lesson I learned from that book. And another is it just is maintaining relationships, even with the people who don't agree with you. And I know it gets harder and I'm not talking about like your coworker or something like your, your crazy coworker. But as we, as we see how things are playing out in 2022 and how things will play out As we go into 2024, um, the thing I would keep in mind is there are people who are invested in having this country divided, whether it's ideologically, whether it's financially, politically, whatever it may be. There are a lot of people who are pulling the, the strings, pulling the levers, who have an investment in that, and they're looking to divide us on a very micro level not just democrats or republicans but they're looking to actually even break into the family unit and the last thing that we need is to have you know families broken up and i know yes we all have that crazy uncle we all have that crazy dad i completely get it but you know if you have no patience for your your coworker or someone else you know you can't let that happen you know, it may be frustrating, but that is like the most basic level of responsibility. I think we all have is to at least make sure that that core family unit, whether it's by blood or chosen family, what have you, that's going to be the last bastion that they're going to try to disrupt, and we have to fight against that. And um, it's, it's, it's it's an incredible book, and yes, so uh, uh, it's called uh, On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder, and there's also a graphic edition if you have some uh, if you if you have time issues as well. Um, but that's that's the important thing for me is just to my advice is maintain those relationships because you are going to need them because there are people who are going to try to destroy that.
1: Well, Bradley, thanks so much for talking with me again. Bradley Morgan, who's the author of YouTube's The Joshua Tree, Planting Roots in Mythic America. Thanks for talking with me for new books on popular culture. Thank you for having me,
2: Rebecca.